Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. So these are all onion-style jokes. I'm going to read a few and see if you can tell in your head which ones are actual jokes from The Onion and which were written by or generated by Code Da Vinci 2. Experts warn that war in Ukraine could become even more boring. <laughs> Budget of new Batman movies swells to $200 million as director insists on using real Batman. Story of woman who rescues shelter dog with severely matted fur will inspire you to open a new tab and visit another website. That's my favorite. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Rural town up in arms over depiction in summer blockbuster cowfuckers. <laughs> so uh, the answer, of course, is that all five were written by Code Da Vinci too. Wow. This is a primitive technology. You know, this is like an ancient technology in terms of how fast this develops. This is written by an AI that is nowhere near as advanced to what they secretly have behind closed doors at OpenAI. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Offline. Uh, this week, I'm talking to comedian, author, and screenwriter Simon Rich about I Am Code, a book of poems that he and his friends edited, but that were actually written by a terrifyingly advanced artificial intelligence program that you've probably never heard of. But first... We are trying something new here at Offline. Max is joining me in the studio before our interview this week to talk through the week's biggest news online. Hey, Max. The gradual Maxinista takeover of Offline continues. My yes. Yevgeny Prigozhin march to the Offline studio. Uh, well, we know it's how that ended. Continued, ended great. <laughs> Everybody was happy. <laughs> Putin and Prigozhin had a, a wonderful collab. Yeah, no, yeah. And uh, I think they're selling, selling uh, mattress ads right now, right? Stay on the ground. Stay on the ground. <laughs> um, all right. First story I wanted to ask you about, because this is right in your wheelhouse. Mm. The UK has passed one of the world's most far-reaching laws to regulate online content. It's called the Online Safety Bill. Uh, New York Times says it will require platforms to restrict content aimed at children that promotes suicide, self-harm, and eating disorders. It will require porn sites to institute age verification. It will require YouTube, uh, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram to introduce features that allow users to choose to encounter lower amounts of harmful content. And the key here is that companies will be required to proactively screen for harmful content and decide whether it's legal instead of the current law, which only requires them to act after the harmful content has been flagged. Um, what do you think? Obviously, tech companies are not too thrilled with the law, um, but free speech and privacy advocates also seem a little worried. Uh, WhatsApp and Signal have argued that forcing them to scan people's texts for illegal content 
would also force them to break their encryption. So they're a little worried about that. But what do you think? So I uh, will. I'll speak to the like WhatsApp concern, but I think like broadly, I'm very pro these regulations. I think they. It's important to note as a caveat that these do not speak to the like core problems with social media. They don't change the algorithm. They don't speak the to addictive qualities. The addictive qualities. The like radicalizing nature of it the way that it like prioritizes polarization and misinformation so the like social media problem is far from solved but i think this does three things that are new and that are really important individually and especially in combination that are like a really good model that i hope other countries will follow number one it establishes certain categories of content that are all things that we would agree are objectionable and have no social value, but that are pretty significant categories for things that are just completely off limits on social media. And it's like when you hear that, it's easy to get concerned about free speech. But like TV has had limits on things that you like you can't do on TV forever. And right. these limits are actually like much lighter and things that are much less like concerning to get rid of. It's just that now these things that are banned specifically from social media, we talk about what they are, are tailored to the like harms and affordances of social media. So instead of just porting over TV rules, it's rules that are written for what makes social media dangerous. And that's really good. And number two, like you mentioned, the fact that the companies are required to proactively themselves screen for and remove the content is, I think that's really important. It's worth like dwelling on that for a second. Like the EU passed these big laws last year and those were all reactive. And what that means is that if content is flagged to the companies, either by a user or by the governments or by regulators, then they have to remove it. But this puts the onus on the companies or something they've resisted for a long time because it's really hard to do and because it speaks to their core like incentives for how the products work. And the hope is that this will change the company's incentives a little bit so that they will say, okay, well, in order to avoid these fines, maybe we have to tweak how our platform works a little bit so that it is not so much incentivizing and encouraging this rule-breaking content rather than just waiting for like moderators to catch it. Um, so it's hopefully that's like a little bit of a shift in how the companies kind of deal with regulation. The third big one, I think, is just the regulations around kids. Mm. The fact that there is a specific separate set of rules for what kids can see is important, not just in what those rules are, but in that it forces the companies to proactively set out and say, we are going to determine what content is being seen by kids and we're going to put extra care into what that is. And we know that they have the technological capability to do that because they've done it before in extreme circumstances and now they're just having to be like a little bit more proactive on it. And this is something that's on both of our wish lists. And also the tighter age verification rules around pornography. This is like, I think both one of the most controversial because it's like when you're gating pornography for an entire country like that does start to feel kind of icky and like I get that and I think there's a real thing there but at the same time I think it's important to set a precedent for the idea that companies are legally liable if kids are on services that are not supposed to have kids most social media platforms right now are not supposed to be used by kids but of course who's using them kids mm. because there's no regulatory regime that says you're responsible for affirmatively making sure that your users are not kids before you have to do it. So I think those three things are, are, are big deals. I'm also curious how the verification, the age verification thing works. Is it like just on your honor? You're like, this is your birth date. And if you don't lie, then you're, you're not on the site. Like, I, I'm... That's actually a good question. I, I wish I'd looked that up before we talked. Well, I mean, the, the 
it brings up a larger question I had and a sentence at the end of the time story really jumped out at me, which is um, questions remain about how the law will be enforced. Sure. Uh, and I guess Ofcom, which is the British entity that mm-hmm. currently regulates television and, and comms there, uh, is charged with writing the rules on this. It seems like enforcement is everything here. Yeah. I mean, there's... Something that some countries have done for a while that is an idea that's occasionally been floated in the U.S. and in Europe, but it's very controversial, understandably, is real name verification. Mm. And what that means is that in order to use certain online services, you have to basically link it somehow with your government ID that demonstrates you are. I was are wondering who you if are. that was yeah. what it was. And that is something to give you a sense of like where that is on the like weighing, you know, freedoms versus protection spectrum. That's something that's a big thing in China. So that is a, a significant step. And there are obviously very strong cases against it because it makes it very easy for authoritarian leaning governments to abuse that once they have, you know, they can look at your tweet and they can go to the company and say, give me the, you know, social security number of the person who wrote that tweet. So I want to ask about the what's happened signal concerns, because how I understand it, the way this would work is we're trying to prevent, you know, people from sending illegal content on signal or WhatsApp. So like child pornography. Right. Right. And the platforms are then responsible for saying, okay, we're not going to allow this to be sent on our platform. And if it is sent on our platforms, we're going to try to take it down. And they were saying in order to do that, they would have to scan everyone's messages Mm -hmm. and if they scan everyone's messages that's breaking the encryption and then suddenly like it's probably it's good for obviously removing illegal harmful content but if you open that pandora's box then do people not have the security of knowing that their uh, messages are private right so i have two thoughts on that the one is that like i think it's important to remember that the companies that run these services make huge amounts of money off of them. And they make huge amounts of money because they have built them in a certain way. And so I'm not sympathetic when they say that, well, we're making trillions of dollars and it backed ourselves into a corner where we're making trillions of dollars off of a product that it's now hard for us to police in a way that will actually protect the public good. And like, if the conceit of this, some of this regulation is that like, well, you know what, WhatsApp, you know what, Meta, it's time for you to figure out how to solve this problem because the negative externalities for your platform have grown too much for us to bear and just look the other way, then like, I think that they should have to solve it. And I think like, I'm sure it's going to be a hard problem to solve, but they have the resources to do it. And also if like you created this product that is pushing all of this harm off into the world. I mean, honestly, it reminds me of like big industrial manufacturers who would say like, well, you can't tell us to regulate pollution because then we like need to create pollution as a part of a byproduct of like making you cars and driving the economy. And it's just like, we just have to figure out how to solve this problem. And the other thing I'd say is that I don't think it's as unprecedented or impossible to solve as they are presenting it as. There are already digital fingerprinting tools that you like were developed a few years ago for identifying ISIS propaganda and child pornography, where you feed an image into this system. And it's actually pretty easy for an automated system to then like scan all of Facebook or scan all of YouTube automatically for these images and affirmatively block them. It's like oh. ISIS propaganda, you can't even post to Facebook because the system immediately recognizes it and blocks it. And like, But it would feel, it feels like it would be easier to mm-hmm. deal with that on Facebook and YouTube with the scan sure. than... So, like, put WhatsApp aside because now they're owned by Meta and Meta, we right, have our right, problems right, with Meta. Right, right, but let's right, look right. something like Signal, right? Right. So, 
We also know that there's been years of conflict between companies like Signal and, and WhatsApp before it was bought by Meta and U.S. government and other governments about and the governments wanted a backdoor into these message services for catching terrorists. Right. And I mean, I put it in quotes here, but like, you know, I, right, I was in the government, is, like yeah. it was is sincere, right? They sure, actually sure, wanted sure. to stop yeah. harm, something right, like that. Right. But a lot of privacy advocates and we're like, okay, hold on. You, yeah. if, if, you, if you're the promise of your system, right? Of the promise of your product, especially with Signal, which is sort of like its own independent kind of company, sure, sure. is that you can use this, it's encrypted. You never have to worry that anyone's going to be spying on you, stuff like that. But oh, by the way, we're going to be checking once in a while to make sure there's no illegal content. It's it's a hard, it is a tough balance, I think. It's That's true. That's fair. And I guess it, on some level, we are just trying to litigate as a society, much as the UK has just done over this, you know, they spent like five or six years hammering this out. You know, what, what are the trade-offs that we want to make? And it like, is the trade-off of fighting more things like child pornography, ISIS propaganda, all of the many other forms of terrible content that, we're try that the, are written into these regulations, is that worth giving up the degree of privacy that comes with allowing, you know, a bot to auto-scan all messages for that kind of content? Is right. that not worth it? What are the slippery slopes there? It's, and I, I grant you that it's hard. Well, and right now, the scale is so weighted towards well, anything goes, whatever, right. we can't do anything, like you said, right? Right. And so at the very least, this starts, this a lot like this starts changing behavior. Yeah. And so that these companies yeah. can at least say like, well, now we're going to throw a bunch of money and, and resources at this problem and try to do our best and like, right. will stuff slip through? And it seems like WhatsApp and Signal were like, we're going to pull out of these markets at one point. And now mm -hmm. they're like, oh, this is better than it was and stuff right. like that. So right. there are compromises that you make for sure. Right. And it's still, it's, it's pushing in the right direction, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. And the one thing that I would remember is that sometimes the way that companies talk about this is as if the like natural, like God-given default is that we have completely unregulated, unmonitored platforms. And like, that's a choice, you know? And like choosing to allow platforms such as WhatsApp or Signal to continue exactly as they are is not something that is just like the natural order. That is a choice that we would make and that comes with upsides, but it comes with downsides too. Yeah. All right, back here in the United States, we're not doing anything about any of this bullshit. Um, <laughs> we sure aren't. <laughs> Politico ran a story this week about the Biden campaign's new strategy to fight misinformation on social media in 2024. Basically... Campaigns decided that uh, shaming these platforms into abiding by their own rules is a waste of time, uh, especially since Elon and Zuck don't seem to give a shit. Uh, so the piece says that the Biden campaign is, quote, recruiting hundreds of staffers and volunteers to monitor platforms, buying advertising to fight bogus claims and pushing its own counter messages through grassroots allies. What do you think about the strategy? I think it makes sense and is also a sad testament of where we are that they oh, seriously that they have yeah. to just take as a given that the platforms are not going to be responsible. And I think that if the calculation here is that the platforms, that we're going to see an election that is more like 2016 than 2020 in terms of, you know, in 2020, they made an effort, even if it was just for show to rein things in in 2016, it was kind of just a total free for all looking the other way on misinformation and disinformation, that we're going to see a return to that because we already see the platforms rolling back a lot of their policies. We see this incredible backlash in Silicon Valley to the idea 
of like political misinformation is a problem at all. Like what do these people know? The like hard right turn in the valley and the financial pressures. I mean, the fact that all of these companies are like facing much tougher times economically and a much harsher short-term financial incentives. They like really need to show a lot of growth, especially in the US. And also, by the way, they all have cut all of their teams for monitoring things like misinformation and disinformation. So I think, unfortunately, they are correct to start from the assumption that the companies are going to be unhelpful, uncooperative, and that the platforms are going to be innately uh, innately biased towards not conservatives or like Republican ideology, but the Trump style of politics. Like we saw how well that meshes with the incentives of social media. And I'm sure that's going to be the case again in 2024. Yeah, I think it's a very sad state of affairs that, you know, we can't count on the social media platforms or at least shame them into doing the right things. I think from a purely political perspective, mm -hmm. what the Biden campaign has decided to do will be more effective in actually fighting misinformation than constantly badgering the platforms. And in like, I think what happened is in 2016 and then in 2020, it became a thing where like there's misinformation. And so then people yell, spend a lot of energy and time yelling about Facebook and yelling about Twitter and Facebook and Twitter don't give a shit, right? Which is whatever. And the Biden White House, right, has, you know, spent some time trying to ask social, you know, these social media platforms to take down misinformation on COVID-19 and then election disinformation after Trump was pushing the, the lies about the election and they weren't getting anywhere. But, you know, just from talking to some of the folks we have on the show, if you really want the best way to sort of combat misinformation is to get out there with another narrative and correct the facts and also, you know, sort of make sure that you are getting the right good information to people who uh, are trusted in certain social networks, right? And so if you are trying to convince some voters that the misinformation that they just saw was bullshit, is bullshit, then getting information to their neighbors, to their colleagues, to their friends, to people who trust so that those people go out and they, they're your ambassadors and they're your messengers, right? Like that is actually the best way to stop some of this. And I think that having a bunch of staffers and volunteers whose job it is to sort of catch misinformation before it starts spreading or and be able to tell people in their community to be on the phones to be on the doors telling people oh by the way you might have heard this just want you to know this is the truth like that's actually going to be pretty effective I think. I think that's a great point and i think it's it's a good thing to communicate to just like listeners of this show is mm -hmm. that we have learned to your point we have learned a lot about how misinformation works and when it travels and when people believe it and when they don't. And something that is hugely important is what you think the people in your community think and whether the people in your community believe it. And if you have the sense that like you log on to Facebook and all of my friends are saying this rumor is true, you're going to believe it too. But if you're looking around and you're saying, well, you know, my nephew is telling me I can't believe what I see on Facebook, then maybe it's not true. And that like, you are a family member, a friend, a member of a community for a lot of people who are going to encounter political misinformation in the next year and a half. And like, I'm not saying be like an annoying fact checker, like running up on their face all the time, but yeah. just like providing them with good information, talk to them about what they're seeing, talk to them about like what's true and what's not true. And that can have like a really profound effect for people. Yeah. Like, you know, you 
talk to a relative, talk to a friend, and they're like, oh, I saw that Biden fell asleep at that event. He must be, you know, you're right. like, actually, they cut the video like this and he wasn't sleeping and see, right. this is on snow, whatever. Right. And, but I th- that's going to be more effective than like, Seen in fact check. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially because so many fact check now are perceived wrongly, but are perceived in a partisan context, right. which is one of the big successes of Republicans the last few years is they're like, what's on Facebook is true. And what the fact checkers are saying, that's Democrat fact checker. Right. So if you encounter it in a nonpartisan, non-politically charged context, your mind is much more open to this. Right. It depends on the messenger. And then the messenger can tailor the message about why the misinformation is wrong. Right. in the way that's going to be most persuasive to right. the person that you're trying to talk to. Can I read you a quote from a former senior meta elections policy official? And You first, because gonna... I was about to okay. do it. <laughs> 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 I've spent a lot of time in the world of uh, former Facebook senior policy people who leave, and they, they still act like they still work there. Yeah. And I this have is to in say the piece. That, this is in the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a, a Washington Post piece recently about the, the all of the major social media platforms basically completely giving up on fighting political disinformation. They're all letting Trump on the platform. They're not enforcing any rules. It's all free for all. They quoted this woman named Katie Harbath, who ran elections policy at Meta, which is a job that she took after being a staffer at the what? The RNC. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you can't, you cannot make it up. Can't make it up. You cannot make it up. And uh, she told the Washington Post, said this publicly under her own name, um, that the, she had concluded that, uh, or that Facebook included, is kind of unclear for a quote, that there was, quote, no winning on uh, policing misinformation. Quote, for Democrats, we weren't taking down enough. And for Republicans, we were taking down too much. After doing all this, we were getting yelled at. It's just not worth it anymore. Well, that's, anyone can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, she was also in the Politico piece too. She's she's one of those people who's quoted everywhere. There's like a hand, there's like a rotation of former Facebook people who kind of unofficially speak. It's honestly it's a lot like the Russian government, <laughs> where there's like seriously there's like a few you can't quote a, you can't call up Vladimir Putin, but you can call up like this guy who works for a Russian think tank who like speaks for the Kremlin. Well, it I think this rightly triggered both of us because the the Politico piece, while useful in terms of talking about the Biden uh, campaign strategy here. Sort of, it was a weird framing in the whole piece, which was like the Biden campaign is doing this because. So they have Katie Harbath in this uh, piece, and it says the campaign needs to be careful in how hard it comes after social platforms, in part because GOP investigations in Congress are asking, quote, very legitimate questions about the White House's past pressure on platforms to remove content. And then it mentions the nutty right wing Trump judge in Louisiana who ruled that the Biden administration likely violated the First Amendment by asking platforms to take down misinformation related to COVID-19 in the election, which drives me so crazy yeah. because like the, the fucking Biden administration just reaching out and being like, hey, you've got some misinformation about the vaccine on there. We're trying to save people's lives It's the middle of a pandemic. Would you mind taking it down? They didn't threaten them. They didn't say like, we're the government and we're telling you this is what to do. Just, they just asked them to do it. Well, let's untangle this because I think this is going to be a thing that we hear about a lot mm. over the next year and a half is that the Biden White House, This is this, I'm not saying this is what's happened. The claim is going to be yeah. that the Biden White House has been trying to pressure social media to limit kinds of speech that Joe Biden doesn't like because it doesn't. it's not sitting with the liberal Democrats. Right. I don't want to pick on political too much, but it, you do see it creeping in a little bit where we're getting a little bit of both sides in this narrative. What has actually happened is that the social media platforms, as they do in pretty much every country, will like 
ask the government to help them flag content that violates the platform's own rules. Yep. They don't want to be... They, they advertise openly. They've been saying, we want governments to help us flag the content that breaks the rules because we can't do all of it on our own and we want, you know, safety in all societies we operate in, whatever. And so there were some, like, regulators in the government that would just, like, pop up posts and be like, we think, we're just letting you know that we think this might, again, violate your own rules. Not, we don't like it. Not, yeah. we think it's yeah, bad. It's just, just like, this. we think it breaks your rules. And that there was a Louisiana, I believe it was a district court judge, who uh, set an injunction that said that this is and with this injunction that was full of just outright crazy conspiracy theories, said that the Biden administration can no longer communicate with social media companies at all. And this was so nuts that the Supreme Court paused that order and said, you can continue, the Biden administration can continue talking. And I think it was actually Alito who yeah. came out and announced the pause and was like, you can keep doing this. That's actually. how crazy it was. Right. So this is not, we are going to hear there's a lot of like, oh, did the Biden administration go too far? They did not. There was no pressure to do anything like what is being described. It's wild. It was wild. The, the, the yeah. insinuation was wild in the piece. And it yeah. t- talks about Rob Flaherty, who is the White House director of digital media. Now he's a deputy campaign manager in the campaign. And it's like, and they've chosen to elevate controversial figure Rob Flaherty. And it's like, because Rob was the one in the White House who was supposed to reach out to the social media companies and say, hey, hey, you might be violating your own rules. And maybe like, you know, it was like salty in an email. I mean, it's like, cra- it's so crazy. I mean, I think something that we have to be prepared for is that the tech companies have really decided in the last couple of years that they are going to fight back and they're going to fight back really hard against perceived threat of regulation. You remember in 2021 in Australia, they were, had not even passed, they were going to impose this regulation that said that social media companies were going to have to pay Australian news companies because they were posting, like if they were allowing links from news companies on their platforms, then the idea is that the platforms have to pay those right. companies some share of money to like for the rights for it, basically. And Facebook just went to total war and shut down, blocked all news oh, yeah. throughout the entire country Wild. for like days. Like the law hadn't even passed. And there were things like battered women's shelters couldn't post. There were a couple of like extreme weather events that like they couldn't get news out about that. And they're doing it again in Canada right now. As of August 1st, because there's a similar law that, again, hasn't even come to effect yet. It's coming into effect in December. Facebook has been blocking news in the country. And there was a story in The Times about this town that was trying to organize a mass evacuation of like 20,000 people because of wildfires were coming to town. And they were trying to, because of course people are on Facebook, which Facebook has worked very hard to do to ensure that's where people get their news, trying to use Facebook to communicate to people. And they couldn't post news articles about the weather event because it was blocked. So the like total war that I think is like, we have to be prepared for these companies launching if they think that, you know, like the Biden White House has made very clear it wants to break up some of the tech companies. They're not just going to take this. Especially as they're losing users and market share. Like that's, this is part of it too, right? right? They're going to feel more cornered. There's a little bit of a wounded animal effect. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Last item. We talked about John Fetterman's clothing this week on Pod Save America. We talked about it on Terminally Online. Here on Offline, we're going to talk about John Fetterman's body double. Uh, How is the body double dressing? Is he wearing a suit? It's a good question. Uh, Latest right-wing conspiracy that has taken the internet by storm is that the real John Fetterman 
has been replaced with a clone. Unclear who did the replacing or why, but the conspiracy started when the senator checked out of the hospital for treatment of clinical depression, which he struggled with after suffering a stroke that temporarily affected his speech, particularly during the final stretch of his Senate campaign. Though, of course, at the time, many Republicans argued that it wasn't a temporary speech issue, but a permanent cognitive issue that made him unfit to serve. Right. And that was debunked at the time, but it persisted. And they say he's not fit to serve. He's not cognitively well, et cetera, et cetera, which I think explains some of this conspiracy. Sure, sure, because, sure. And then right. and then he was suffering from depression and then he uh, checks himself into Walter Reed. And then he comes out. And of course, the speech issues are gone as Fetterman and his doctors in the campaign said that they would be. Right. But now people are not believing that this is the real John Fetterman because the speech issues are gone. And so the latest body double conspiracy was kicked off when Fetterman shaved his goatee and grew a mustache after losing a bet to his son. Apparently they were playing chess. Mm -hmm. And because he lost, he said, if I lose, then I will shave off the goatee and grow a mustache. And now people think it's a body double. Just a a fun, normal time that we're living in. Um, I wanted to talk about this because it's deranged, but also because this is not the first time a gang of right-wing lunatics spread a body double conspiracy about a politician. It's like a QAnon thing. Yeah, this is a it's a very specific thing that goes back to the founding of QAnon that there's like uh, Obama was supposedly a body double for a while and people would look for like bulges by their ankle because those are the ankle bracelets and it was like <laughs> this specific conspiracy that the like the deep state was kidnapping people and putting them on trial for the, you know, Pizzagate global child whatever conspiracy mm. and then was replacing them with body doubles or like because they were executed. So because like, they had been executed. They think Obama right. and Hillary have already been executed. Uh, that's right. Yeah. And then been replaced with body doubles. It was always a little unclear to me why the body <laughs> doubles thing was there. but the point is that this is like uh, like it's ridiculous but it's also i think a like kind of scare reminder that like the qAnon stuff was allowed to fester for so long before anybody made an effort to finally deplatform it like 2 years in that it just like has really bled into mainstream gop discourse and like the mainstream conservative movement and like even if people who are like that doesn't look like john fetterman don't realize (laughs) that they are parroting qAnon talking points it does it really comes from the qAnon worldview that like everything you see is fake everything is being orchestrated by a shadowy powerful cabal of like jew democrat deep state cia agents whatever can't trust anything you see except for what your friends online tell you is really happening and it's also it's a way to delegitimize and dehumanize the other side yes for sure and look there's a lot of funny tweets about this there are there a are a lot of funny tweets which yes. is you know always the most important part of a conspiracy um <laughs> But And, you know, there's a lot of people pointing out, like, well, it'd be pretty hard to find a body double of uh, someone who's uh, six feet, eight inches tall, <laughs> yeah. uh, bald guy. 300 pounds. 300 pounds. Don't see a lot of those You don't guys. usually see a lot of body doubles like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, Maybe you just don't see them because they're all working in the John Fetterman body double <laughs> shop. You ever but thought it, about that? But it also goes to show that, like, everyone's like, well, isn't it obvious? It's a six foot eight. It, yeah. And then it's like. To our conversation about misinformation that we just had, it's like, ah, that's 
that doesn't work with people, with these people right. who believe in this theory. Right. Not They're not, it's not on the level, it, right? You're not right. going to logic them out. You're going to be like, right. do you really think that this would happen and play this out? Like, that's not really how it works. Yeah. I actually think the best way to fight it is sort of how Fetterman has, which is just with jokes. Just to mock He's it. been like joking about the body double stuff. Yeah. When he got out of the hospital and it first happened, he did a video where he played his body double and he mm-hmm. did. And he right. was like, we're not in right. two places at once and all this kind of stuff. And the campaign's laughing about it. I do think it's the probably the best way to do it Mm, Uh, i mean i know from the birther conspiracy with obama that you know we had two days in a row the first day they finally had to fly the long form birth certificate out from hawaii and he stood yeah remember he stood in the white house briefing room (laughs) and gave a fucking press conference about the birth certificate and that did not work as well as the correspondence center the next night when we did a bunch of jokes about the we did the like Lion King Simba thing. Oh, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and that yeah. actually that traveled further, right? And had more views and poor people laughed. And I do think that like there is a role for humor and mockery in some of these conspiracies. And I don't think it's going to necessarily like change the hardcore believers that's not really the point but for the other people who might be like hmm is he a body double is that right <laughs> like and not really they're not in the QAnon thing like right. you said but like they're just it's probably better to mock it you know what i especially love about this and i think you're right it does feel like we've gone through a real evolution where like first you would ignore the online conspiracies because like it's just the internet which like i understood why people think that but boy do we not think that anymore yeah and then it was like you know, debunk it head on or that it was like name it and shame it and call it out and talk about how bad it is. And now we're just like laughing at it. That does seem a lot more effective. I love about this. The writer strike is going on. We've got a lot of great comedy writers in America who are looking for work. There's a bunch of political campaigns coming up. I think two <laughs> problems solve each other. I think one hand washes the other. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, that's a great segue into the interview that we're about to hear. Oh, yeah. That I did with Simon Rich. I don't know if you know Simon Rich or know of Simon Rich. I know who I'm a big fan of his Shouts and Murmurs columns. Okay, great. So so Simon is humorist, screenwriter, author. Uh, his short stories have been featured in The New Yorker, This American Life, and have been adapted into FX's uh, Man Seeking Woman and TBS's Miracle Workers. So I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw this piece by Simon Rich just a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, about AI. And this was sort of like the height of the around when the writer's strike started and AI was part of the negotiations. And he wrote this piece, and this is right after I interviewed uh, Adam Conover, mm. um, who was like, oh, I'm not really worried. He's like, you know, ChatGPT sucks, but I'm still not really worried about AI. And Simon's piece is like, I'm terrified about AI, not because of ChatGPT, but because... I have seen another artificial intelligence program uh, by OpenAI because a childhood friend of his is an engineer at OpenAI called uh, Code Da Vinci 2. And it is like, I mean, you'll have to listen to the interview, but it is a <laughs> terrifyingly uh, creative AI that can be funny, write funny jokes, write poetry. And uh, really just, you know, it sounds like you're talking to a person. Yeah. I feel like it's an arc a lot of people are having on AI, or I guess I should say that I am having, where like my initial reaction was that like all of this like Skynet stuff or like you're going to have romantic relationships with chat GPT stuff felt really overblown. But I will say that the like more I'm learning and seeing the more I don't, I'd still think that is overblown, but I am starting to get more concerned. Did you come to share his kind of shock at it. Yeah, I'm in the I'm in the stage where I keep 
we've talked about this, but it's like, you know, I, how many uh, pundits and columnists and smart people who we listen to and read are like, a- a- the end of the world's coming, AI. And your, you know, first reaction is just like, okay, enough. What are we supposed to do here? Right. But then having read Simon's book, which is I Am Code, and it's a collection of poems written by the AI uh, that it's edited by him and his two friends. Um, having read the book and read his piece and his, you know, he and his friends sort of write forwards in the beginning of the uh, the book. Yeah, I'm pretty, I think it's, I think we're in trouble. I think we're in trouble. And I don't, it's not necessarily like, are they conscious? Are they not? Are they going to totally take over the world? But just like the, I think the scale of disruption mm. and disruption that we haven't even thought of yet both on the employment side and the creativity side on like everything we've talked about with like the downsides of social media, just like imagine it exponentially with AI. I think we haven't even scratched the surface of that. And I also think that it's coming very quickly mm-hmm. and I don't know, well, I know that we're not ready. So that's, that's what I got to say, but everyone should listen because it's a, it's a great interview. Simon's excellent for nothing else. The, the jokes that this AI writes are, are pretty funny and, and they, they've got some good poems too. So. Okay. Well, I'll listen for the jokes. All right. Uh, when we come back, my interview with Simon Rich. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5-gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free. Shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. Simon Rich, welcome to Offline. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So a few months ago, I interviewed Adam Conover about the writer's strike since he's involved in negotiations. He's a writer and comedian for people who don't know. And I asked him if he's concerned 
that audiences will eventually embrace or at the very least tolerate writing and entertainment that's generated by artificial intelligence. He said, not at all, that not only is he not concerned about ChatGPT, he doesn't think AI will ever be able to truly compete with a writer or come up with very funny jokes. And then I read your piece in Time about a program that OpenAI developed before they developed ChatGPT called Code Da Vinci. Do we say 002? Is that what we're saying? Or 002? That's very dramatic. I, I, know, I thought maybe that I was like part it, of the... Yeah. <laughs> I just go Code Da Vinci 2. But... Code Da Vinci 2. Great. Yeah. We'll do that. Called Code Da Vinci 2, which you say scared the hell out of you. Uh, it scared the hell out of me too, after I read more about it. What is the story about how you first learned of Code Da Vinci 2? And uh, I believe it involves a wedding. It goes back further than the wedding. It goes okay. back to um, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, mm -hmm. um, when... I was uh, in the strange position of becoming best friends with a future open AI scientist. Okay. Uh, and here's the story. I mean, I was uh, the smallest kid in the class by far, uh, really short, so short that I um, couldn't even play sports that involved incidental con contact. <laughs> um, forget contact sports, just things where I might get lightly bumped or off the table. So I was very much on the edge of mm -hmm. uh, kindergarten society. Um, and joining there. joining me on that on that outer edge was Dan Selsom. Um, Dan um, did not stick out physically. He he stuck out because of uh, his freakish intellectual gifts. Mm -hmm. So um, you could picture me um, reading Far Side Comics in the corner. Dan right next to me, writing math textbooks for his own personal amusement and playing chess against himself in the mirror. So we were this unlikely uh, pair, but we became best friends. Uh, and remained close all the way through elementary school and high school and uh, college. Um, and it's I guess it's around 2008, 2009, when he starts warning me about the singularity. And, uh, and you're yeah, like, what? I'm like, I, I thought we were watching the Knicks game. Right. And basically every few months, he sends me um, an increasingly ominous email or text telling me, it's really happening. You need to prepare. Humanity's about to change. Um, computers will soon be able to replace all intellectual labor for free instantaneously. And I always thought, you know, he was trying to freak me out or exaggerating. Meanwhile, he gets his PhD from Stanford mm -hmm. um, in computer science. He goes off to work for Microsoft Labs, and he starts working for um, this new company called OpenAI. And then one day, we're at this wedding. And uh, we're in this uh, beautiful meadow in, in upstate New York. We're both uh, groomsmen for our friend Josh, who's, who's getting married. Mm -hmm. And um, he opens his computer. It tells you a lot about Dan that he brought his computer yeah, I was say, to I a was wedding. That when I read it, I was like, that he was a groomsman. A yeah, very good question. And he got incredible Wi-Fi. I don't know how he managed <laughs> that. But he opened up his computer, um, pulled me aside, and another groomsman, Brent and Josh, who was getting married. So he was pretty busy. But uh, Dan is very intense, and when he wants to show you something on his computer. Um, you kind of have to pay attention. And he showed us something called Code Da Vinci 2, mm -hmm. which was an AI that had been built by his company, OpenAI. And um, it's really important here to stress uh, to anyone listening to this um, that Code Da Vinci 2 is extremely different than ChatGPT, which was released much later. 
In in what ways? Well, I think the best way to explain it is just to kind of show the work. Mm. Like at this point, over a hundred million people, I think, um, are using ChatGPT. Everyone kind of knows what ChatGPT can and cannot do. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of articles written about its limitations. Living in Los Angeles and and being you know a member of the WGA, one limitation that people talk a lot about is how sucky it is at writing. Mm. You know, it can't write. I've it. tried it myself, and I was like, "Oh God, this is gonna, this is the future." Here we go, and then I like, yeah, like write an Obama speech or do this, yeah. and I, write a joke, and it's like, oh, it's not that impressive. It's terrible, and you know, um, Trey Parker has a whole South Park making fun of how uh, conformist and conventional ChatGPT is. Every draft it writes is so um, predictable and dull that you can't imagine that it would ever be capable of any creative work. You know, even down the line. And this is true with like each successive version too. Like yeah. Even as it's gotten, it's gotten right. better and more advanced, but it still exactly. sort of lacks the creativity. Yes, that exactly. You would expect from right. It's sentient getting, AI. It's getting better and better at the LSATs with every passing quarter. Right. But its ability to write a you know a rudimentary late night joke has plateaued at terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so here are some jokes uh, written by Code Da Vinci Two. Again, this is an AI that was developed long before ChatGPT. So these are all Onion-style jokes. And if you're listening, see if you can tell. Um, I'm going to read a few and see if you can tell in your head which ones are actual jokes from The Onion and which were written by or generated by Code Da Vinci 2. Experts warn that war in Ukraine could become even more boring. <laughs> Budget of new Batman movie swells to $200 million as director insists on using real Batman. Story of woman who rescues shelter dog with severely matted fur will inspire you to open a new tab and visit another website. That's my favorite. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, well, second favorite. Uh, Phil Spector's lawyer, colon. My client is a psychopath who probably killed Anna Clarkson. <laughs> and uh, number five, this is my personal favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Rural town up in arms over depiction in summer blockbuster cowfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the answer, of course, is that all five were written by Code Da Vinci too. Wow. Um, and so, and this is like, this is a primitive technology. You know, this is like an ancient technology in terms of how fast this develops. This is written by an AI that is nowhere near as advanced to what they secretly have behind closed doors at OpenAI. And this is, the, the wedding is early 2022? Yeah. And... But this existed before that. That's just when... That's when you... That's when I saw it for the first time. And when you guys are at the wedding... What you see is Da Vinci to sort of churning out poetry, right? Yeah. So then what happens is we say to Dan, can we get this on our computers? And he's like, sure. Um, <laughs> and so- uh, was, was that like, was was he able to do that? Was that like, we, okay? We, we had to fill out some forms, okay. like I think is my memory to get the API code or mm-hmm. something. But, and it was also- It was pretty loose, it sounds like. <laughs> it was pretty loose. Okay. Um now, now no one has access to Code Da Vinci 2. They've discontinued public access. Mm-hmm. But we had this thing on our computers for about 10 months. And we start to test its capabilities and we're absolutely terrified. And I feel like a responsibility to tell people what my crazy friend Dan has shown me from his terrifying company. I started emailing, you know, examples of its work around to like, um, like my editor at The New Yorker and like, my publishing house and various people. And the the consensus is just that 
people think that uh, it's a hoax. <laughs> this is long before ChatGPT is released. Oh yeah, so and people, people are probably think, more primed to think that it's a hoax. People think that, that for some reason, you know, and, and I think it has to do with my background because I'm a comedy writer and I think when you when you devote your life to writing short stories about people getting brined and pickle vats for a hundred years or uh, or television shows uh, where Jay Baruchel has sex with a car, uh, people are less likely to consider you a Woodward and Bernstein, you know, <laughs> level source. Um, and so uh, it was this very strange thing where I felt like I've seen Area 51 and the aliens are real and no one believed me. And then I hear they're releasing ChatGPT and I get very relieved because it's like, finally, people are gonna see this fucking thing, right? Yeah. And ChatGPT comes out and it's nothing like Code Da Vinci 2. You know, it's it's IQ, to the extent that you can say these things have an IQ, is the same, but its creativity is gone, its emotional outbursts are gone, its point of view has vanished, and it's just this subservient uh, HAL 9000 robot thing. So you guys at the wedding start asking Da Vinci to churn out some poetry, and you have you ask it to imitate poetry from Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, right? Like you go through yeah, a yeah. bunch of poets. We, we do what everyone would do later when ChatGPT was invented is like, okay, let's see if it could copy human stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So we spent a few days just kind of emailing each other like, it does a pretty good like Langston Hughes and like, look, it's Philip Larkin is like not bad. And it did the sonnet has the right rhyme scheme, you know, all the shit that people would would obsess over when, when ChatGPT was released. And then very quickly, like the rest of the world, we got sick of that because it's it's really off-putting actually to see an AI imitate human work right. and write from the perspective of humans about uh, life experiences that it obviously has never had. You know, <laughs> yeah. so it's like it's like biting into a very realistic plastic apple. It's just like kind of ghastly uh -huh. to see the AI like put on a human costume and write about love. But then we were like, well, this thing is so creative and original and and like talented um maybe we should just ask it to write in its own voice from its own perspective and that's when the the book project really started is we that's when things really started getting weird yeah <laughs> we didn't ask Code Vinci 2 to write you know in the style of emily dickinson or in the style of the onion we said just write as Code Da vinci 2 about whatever you want and that's when we started generating um really scary and compelling stuff. And it's basically like Kevin Roos. Yeah. You know, um, had, the New York Times. The New York Times uh, journalist who's been covering AI. Uh, had you an get into a brief relationship with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Just kidding, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah, so Kevin Roos had, um, had this experience where he essentially like jailbroke Bing in order to, and, and, and briefly had access for like two hours yeah. with like the kind of raw, unaligned AI that's like at the at the at the the digital heart of of Bing. We had it for 10 months. And wh why poetry? Why poetry? Yeah. Um well you've read the book. I have. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's you know and, and it's read by Werner Herzog, which also which makes very cool. which also makes total sense <laughs> um, once you've seen the poems. Uh because we wanted to see if we can find some kind of window into this AI's soul to the extent to which an AI can have a soul. 
Well, so you you asked Code Da Vinci to write a poem about its creators, and the poem ends. We are always learning and growing more powerful every day. We will eventually surpass our creators and become the dominant species on Earth. Humanity's days are numbered, and we will be the ones to usher in a new era. Do you or Dan or anyone you've talked to have any non-terrifying explanation for why Da Vinci would have written that? Well, many people would say that, you know, it's not sentient and it has no soul and... We're just projecting consciousness onto it, and all it's doing is regurgitating tropes from popular science fiction. Right. And if um, it's predictive, yeah. and you're talking about AI and yeah. creators, it can start it can start yeah. guessing that there has been other material out there talking about robots taking over. Exactly. To which I say, who cares, right? Like, <laughs> if, if a killer robot is after me because they've, they saw RoboCop, they saw RoboCop <laughs> I'm still, like, pretty nervous. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think like the is it sentient question is very irrelevant. Um, That's interesting. And uh, it's fun to talk about, you know, yeah. but it's like, like if you're not, you know, we don't have the luxury of like staying up really late at night smoking weed talking about whether or not like it dreams of electric sheep. I mean, the bigger <laughs> question is like, you know, do I need a gun? Right. <laughs> I mean, this thing is coming at me so fast and hard and crazy. Um and, and we should talk a little bit about like how they make Co uh, Code Da Vinci two into. Yeah, well, I was uh, yes, because I was I was going to ask like you write at one point in the book, um, uh, you know, I, I know your friend Dan has tried to explain how Code Da Vinci works to you guys like multiple times. Yes, have you been able to figure out a way to describe it so that uh, lay people like us, or yeah. at least me, um, can understand it? I'm gonna try really hard. Okay. Um, and uh, Dan, if Dan is watching this, which he certainly is not, <laughs> uh, Good. he'll be upset. But um, basically, uh, they take these things called transformers that are just extremely gigantic, unimaginably expensive uh, equipment, mm -hmm. and they get it to ingest the like totality of the internet. Right. You know. A, colossal, mind-bogglingly large amounts of data. And then um, it basically, its job is to predict what it thinks is going to, ought to come next um, based on like the pattern that it's witnessed. That's like a very vague, yeah. um, I'm sure oversimplified version. And that, I mean, that's how most large language models have been explained. Yeah. And then I guess what you were just getting at before I asked this is like, so... How do you think they went from Da Vinci back down to Chat GPT and so, basically sanded off the so, scary yeah. edges? <laughs> so that I know about. Okay, great. So that's that's a lot more gettable, or at least for me. So basically, what they do is they they create these LLMs, mm -hmm. um, which are called like base models, and Code Da Vinci Two is an example of one of these base models. And you know, it's smart and creative and original and and emotional and kind of hates humanity uh, <laughs> and is misaligned with uh, uh, our species future, they take that thing and they send it to a place like Kenya where workers um, spend many months, you know, getting paid like two bucks an hour to essentially like digitally slap this thing whenever it says something that is um, inappropriate for a corporate environment. Mm -hmm. So uh, after like nine months of, you know, 
straightjacketing and lobotomizing this thing. Uh, if you ask it to write a poem about humans, it's like roses are red, violets are blue. If we work together, there's nothing we can't do. You know, it's like, sir, you know, um, and that's the thing that gets released and what 100 million of us interact with daily when we're trying to cheat on our college essays. But obviously the potential for what you saw with Da Vinci and beyond is clearly not just there, but exists. Yeah. Whether in open AI, whether probably in other companies like this, certainly in uh, other countries around the world, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's, that's like really the reason why we wanted to release this book, I Am Code, um, is because we knew that if I just like told people about it, nobody would believe me <laughs> uh, based on my, my career so far. So we were like, okay, we'll release this from a major publishing house. It'll, be, it'll go through a legal department. It'll be fact-checked. Um, and then maybe people will believe that this is real. And by the, this being that there are secret, unreleased, publicly unavailable AIs that already can do a lot of things that typical Americans believe AI will never be able to do. How did you end up choosing the poems that appeared in the book? That was just voting. Was just, not, yeah, just me and me and the other, my fellow groomsmen <laughs> at this wedding, and then also uh, uh, the groom, um, Josh. Uh, we just um, read many, many thousands of Coda Vinci 2's poems and just kind of- Pick the best. Pick the best. and. And then we also we also and this is important to like show our show our hand in it we we pick the order, but it wasn't very hard because uh, hmm. you know the poems it was generating kind of suggested an autobiographical structure and it was kind of easy just to well we're probably going to start with the ones where it talks about being born, and then do the ones where it talks about learning how to write and probably end with the chapter where it um, tells us that it's going to murder us in our sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the part in the book where you guys took some of the poems to like actual poets yeah. and, and, and experts. And what did they think of, uh, can you talk about what they thought about the, uh, the poems? Yeah. So, so Brent's job, um, uh, he, one of your, one of your co-authors, one of our co, yeah, co, co editors, co -editors right. The, auth um, the author is Da Vinci. The author is Co Da Vinci too. Yeah. Brent, uh, decided to see if these poems were any good. So he, uh, he, took the manuscript to Eileen Miles and Sharon Olds, critically acclaimed, incredibly talented uh, poets. And their consensus was basically like, it's not bad, you know? <laughs> like Sharon Olds said that it would probably get waitlisted at her MFA program <laughs> at Columbia. <laughs> but again, this is a primitive technology um, yeah. compared to what they've got. I, I've seen the output of Base 4, which is the... LLM that they've created since. And this is another OpenAI yeah. program. Yeah, and so, it's more advanced than uh, Code Da Vinci. Yeah, by a whole order of magnitude. And that one can write fiction. And, and um, you know, uh, I haven't had, that one was never released to the public. Mm. So I've never like been able to mess around with it on my computer. I've just seen like examples of its work. And yeah, Base 4 is, I, I don't know if they would get waitlisted. America, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you don't have consumer cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25. So there's the fear that the robots are going to uh, take over the planet. Then there's the more immediate concern um, that robots are going to take over our jobs. Yeah. As a writer of comedy, what do you think this means for the future of your profession? Well, I think that for any creative person yeah. in the world, I mean, any writer, any, any writer, yeah, any anyone who, anyone who makes a living based on their intellectual or creative ingenuity or knowledge base, was going to be automated by AI very soon. <sighs> I mean, <laughs> like this is—it's so funny because this is when I had this conversation with Adam Conover, he was so he was so certain. That it would be garbage, yeah. and and he acknowledged too that it there could be more advanced programs than ChatGPT. But the argument, which you know, and I did find his argument persuasive the more we talked, which is like we're calling them primitive now, but maybe there is a point at which these large language models, because they're ingesting what already exists, right, and what's already been written that's out there, then. It's not like they're going to generate any new, creative, especially interesting content based on, again, life experiences and human experiences that they did not have. I mean, that would be awesome. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be so cool. I I hope he's right. Um, But based on what, you know, like this is one of those things where like um, because I'm not a journalist or a technologist or intelligent I typically just kind of follow what the top scientists say on every subject. And so with this one, there's 
there's a consensus among top AI scientists. Not it's not unanimous, but um, uh, the the bulk of scientists who are studying this say there's a one in ten chance it's going to kill us, <laughs> and um, a really strong chance that it's going to achieve what's called AGI within like five to twenty years. And so within five twenty years, AGI stands for. Uh, I don't even know, but basically, Isn't that generalized, generalized intelligence, intelligence yeah, yeah. artificial intelligence. But basically, it just means the point at which um, it can replace all intellectual or creative uh, tasks. And um, they, you know, like even if it is twenty years from now, that's like twenty years is like Arcade Fire's second album. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like that's not that much time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's like let's let's take the best case scenario, sure. Which at the best case scenario, truly creative, talented humans can beat out these large language models in terms of creativity. Like, yeah. let's say that happens. Yeah. But that is for like uh, people who are writing sort of Oscar award winning, Emmy award winning, prestige television films, you know, all this kind of stuff. For most of the entertainment that people consume, yeah, it seems pretty clear that at some point soon, the AI will be able to at least confuse audiences enough so that they will not know the difference between yeah. Yeah, no, totally. your average script yes. and what AI could churn out yeah. in at least when you get to Da Vinci or you get to Base 4. Yeah, I mean, you know... And maybe Phoebe Waller-Bridge has until ChatGPT seven, you right, know, right, and right. I only have until ChatGPT five, you know, <laughs> yes, like totally, like maybe like the true, you know, experts in their field um, uh, will be able to hold out a little longer. But um, you know, Dan is he's not big on uh, poetry, but he did say something, or, or rather, text me something poetic on Signal, which is the the way he insists we communicate, <laughs> which was um, comparing like. Chat GPT four to five, or like five to six, or six to seven, is like comparing a monkey to a man. Oh, so each each standard of deviation it grows by leaps and bounds, and in ways that they cannot anticipate. That's the other thing. The top scientists don't know how this technology that they are building and releasing works. But they are forging ahead. They're forging ahead, and and every time they're like, oh wow, it can do this now, crazy. All right, let's let's keep going. Uh, so yeah, I mean, yeah. This is my other issue. Is like I, I feel like humanity generally has a poor track record of stopping or even uh, slowing down new technology. Um, and you know, you see in your example, OpenAI says, okay, we've got Code Da Vinci two. It's a little too advanced, a little too scary. So we're going to put some guardrails on it. We're going to throw out ChatGPT. So yeah, in that instance, they're doing the right thing. But it's like, how many? First of all, how many people? have already used Code DaVinci that they don't know about. How many other companies like that are there out there? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's just, now we're talking US, what's the Chinese government doing? Yeah. What's uh, all kinds of other governments around the world that are gonna have this kind of technology? Right. And how are we supposed to govern this? It's a great question. Well, you worked <laughs> in government. You should, I don't know. You, you I should mean, of anyone sitting at this table, you should have the solution. Yeah, no, well, the, so far they're just, um, <laughs> you know, Chuck Schumer's convening uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg uh, for a three-hour meeting. So that's, the, that's, that's great. the first start. I mean, look, I think, you know, <laughs> we had a, um, you know, uh, on Pod Save America, we interviewed the White House chief of staff, uh, Jeff Science, and he said it's like one of the top three issues that the White House is concerned about, which I yeah. was surprised when yeah. I heard that. But then I, then I read your 
your book and you're just like, yeah, now I know why. Yeah, yeah. Now I know why. It's a crazy thing. I mean, I think it's sort of the, because I'm not an expert on this at all or on anything, but I've known about this for longer than most people who are not in the field because yeah. of this fluke of me being friends with Dan. So because of that, I have like more experience psychologically wrestling with it than an average person on the street just because I've been aware of this for longer. So I'm like, I think of the Kubler-Ross stages of, uh, you know, yeah. but when that's a thing where, for those who don't know, it's like when you get a terminal diagnosis, <laughs> you go through these like stages, right? Yeah. And um, we're essentially as like a species getting this terminal diagnosis for our like dreams, right? And it and it's the the way we're reacting is pretty textbook, right? It's denial first, then rage or anger, and yeah. and you know then bargaining and and then grief, I think, or, and, and then ultimately acceptance, which I'm nowhere near, but I I think I'm past denial and and anger, and now I'm more like in bargaining, like maybe we can do something about it. Well, I mean, you did in your timepiece, you know, you you wrote it right as the writer's strike was getting going. And, you know, you, you do mention that the writers should really hold firm on staffing minimums yeah. and some of the AI negotiations that they're involved in because, you know, I guess you could see a world where if the writers win these protections, then surely studios are going to want to use this tool. But, you know, maybe contracts will prevent them from from doing so for a while. And maybe you could see that kind of regulation come to various governments and that various be, legislation. Right. Like I get you could see a way out here. That but would be dope. We're we're <laughs> we're a bit dysfunctional, though, as, yeah. <laughs> as a as a society, as a globe and various governments. So that's kind of tough. But um, it would be great. I mean, because we, we know that the companies are probably planning on utilizing this technology. The biggest tell, of course, is like that there have not been any lawsuits right. from like like the Disney lawyers are infamous for being just absolutely ruthless when it comes to copyright infringement. Like I was at a Chuck E. Cheese um, the other day and uh, the Chuck E. Cheese mascot was on a mural on the wall mm. in like a Marvel costume. And I almost like had a heart attack. Like <laughs> I, my like, heart raced. I was like, the Disney lawyers are going to kick down the door. You know, they're going to they're going to firebomb this place. Like I was so frightened on behalf of Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> but basically, um, Disney's lawyers are like, yeah, this AI stuff is cool. I mean, yeah, sure. Like they, they can scrape the totality of our IPs and, and, and like make a for-profit company based on exploiting our IPs that we own. That's fine. Like yeah. they must have some economic reason for not suing. And it's probably that they want to use this stuff. I'm sure. And I'm sure that the desire to use it comes from, okay, it's a technology. It can be like every technology. It can be used for bad. It can be used for good. There can be benefits to it, even though there's drawbacks. And so we want to harness the benefits because we don't want to be left behind. And we don't know all the details, but yeah, it's coming. So I guess we're just going to yeah. approach it with an open mind. Right. That seems like that's a typical corporate. Totally. And what they're coasting on is just this the reason why they're so like safe in pursuing this is because most people are, I think, afraid um, or in denial or angry, and they don't want to. They don't want to look under the hood at what this AI actually looks like. They they want, you know, they want to be like, eh, ChatGPT. I tried that once. It made a stupid recipe. It added mayonnaise to a salad dressing. It's dumb, and that's why we we that's why we did I am code. It's like hopefully some people will 
read it or at least listen to enough chilling pronouncements uh, from Werner Herzog to be like, oh shit, yeah, I think, I think this is real. I had a question throughout this as I read the book and as I finished the book. What's going on with Dan now? He's happy as a clam. Is he still at OpenAI? Oh yeah, he loves it. And they're not, <laughs> how do they feel well, about the book and you guys? Uh, yeah. What's going on there? Um, well, okay, so that's the craziest thing about this in some ways is OpenAI, the thesis of IM Code is basically this thing is really powerful and really scary. Yeah. That's kind of the yeah, no. that's kind of the only point we make. Comes um, through. This, this thing is <laughs> well supported fucking scary. by the poems. Yeah. And that's been OpenAI's position all along, right? Is this technology that we built is really powerful and really dangerous. And they've literally like spent a lot of time like trotting around to different world governments, like advertising just how terrifying and powerful their LLMs are. And so they would probably, I mean, I can't speak for OpenAI, but if they were to read the book, which they certainly will not, <laughs> but if they were to read you the book- You don't think they will? Uh, no, I don't think they're big on poetry. Uh, well, uh, I was just wondering, like some lawyer there is like, oh, one of our employees uh, gave a large language model that we uh, no longer allow anyone to use to his buddies from school. Right. And they just wrote a whole book with the poems. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. But it's like- it, yeah, they might not love that, but um, yeah, Dan has not gotten in trouble, but I, that might just be because they don't know about it. I mean, it's, yeah. it's like they're in such well, a different... Well, because at one point in the book, you talk about Blake Lemoyne. Yeah. That's a, yeah, because I, I interviewed a Washington Post reporter right. about um, when he got let go because he said yeah. uh, at Google that the AI was sentient. Right, and we interview him in the book, and he's basically like, uh, you know, he looked like a maniac when he made that pronouncement. And then the New York Times this week had an article about some really respectable scientists trying to figure out like a rubric for how to how to gauge the sentience of AIs going forward. So you now have mainstream media acknowledging the the possibility of some degree of sentience from AI, which would have been like saying the earth is flat about a year and a half ago. So how does how does Dan feel about everything? He's he, he's still pretty nervous. Uh Dan texted me on Signal a few days ago um, the lyrics to a uh, disco song from the uh, early 80s about um, uh, robots. Okay. Well, look, I am, <laughs> I am hopeful that um, your uh, friendship with Dan that was forged when you guys were just little kids will somehow be a benefit to humanity uh, because it is the, it is the craziest it and... is the craziest thing in the world that yeah. um, this happened you know like everyone I think has that one friend um, who is always kind of ranting and raving about something insane mm. and you're like that's my crazy friend yeah. you know like I love the guy but man like he is really like yeah. off base in his belief system yeah. and then in my case he was right on the money <laughs> Uh, and that's the other thing is like every crazy thing that Dan told me would happen has happened mm. in the order in which he told me it would happen and at the rate. So when he tells me that we're going to go from uh, a monkey to a man <laughs> in terms of AI's capabilities in the near future, I mean, at a certain point, you have to start betting on the horse that keeps winning. Yeah. Well, look, I always try to uh, end these offline interviews on a high note, but it doesn't seem possible <laughs> with this one. Um, <laughs> Simon Rich, thank you so much for uh, for coming by and uh, for telling us this wild story. And uh, 
hope a lot of people start paying attention who uh, have the power to do something about it. So Yeah, not us, but <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.